we are in chapter 10, verse 4, we read from verse 35 to verse 45. This evening we are looking at verse 41 to verse 45, but we read also the bits we read this morning. Verse 35. 846. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so look at verse 41 to verse 45. Now Count Nicholas von, i got to say this name right, Zinzer, Zinzendorf, why didn't I come up with a better name? Count, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, I think that's his name, was a German nobleman who was born into great power and privilege. He lived from 1700 to 1760, right? And during his life, he, found, he was one of the founders of the Moravian, Moravian Church. And over the course of his life, he spent his wealth down to practically zero doing good deeds. Great man, spent everything doing good deeds to other people. Uh, Count Nicholas literally poured himself out for others. He emptied his bank account, we might say, for others. Why did he do this thing? I mean, what motivated him to live so radically for others? Well, the story goes that as a 19-year-old, Count Nicholas was sent to visit the capital cities of Europe uh, in order to complete his education. This used to happen in those days, particularly in Germany. After they have started, if you, re if you have read George Muller's life, he experienced something similar. They would send them around Europe uh, to learn things. Now, one day, he found himself in the, as he was touring these capital cities in Europe, he found himself in the art gallery of Dusseldorf, right? And he was gazing at Domenico Fetti's portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ wearing a crown of thorns. So he's in a museum, and he sees this portrait uh, of the Lord Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. 
And as he looked at that image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering of Jesus, it moved young Nicholas. He kept gazing at it. And then he looked on the side of the painting, just at the bottom of this painting. And he saw that the artist had written some words about this painting. He had the words that Jesus might say to any of us this afternoon. The words said this, All of this I did for you. What have you done for me? All of this I did for you. The crown of thorns. The being crushed on the cross. What have you done for me? The, as I thought about that encounter of young Nicholas and what motivated him to pour out his life for others, I realized that the radical life of Nicholas illustrates an important truth that Jesus has been teaching us in Mark over the last two chapters. And what Jesus has been teaching us in these two chapters is that a true Christian follows Jesus, right? We know that. And following Jesus means laying down our life for Jesus because he laid down his life for us. So Mark 8, verse 34 to 35, is at the heart of these two chapters. And you remember what Jesus says there. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's at the heart of chapter 8 to 10. And as we go from chapter 8 throughout chapter 10, Jesus is applying this truth to us in different situations. Jesus is showing us what it means to lay down our lives as husbands and wives. So chapter 10 verse 1 to 12 is about that relationship between husband and wife. What does it mean for us to lay down our lives as spouses? Again, in verse 13 to 16 of chapter 10, Jesus is showing us what does it mean to lay down our lives as, our, as parents. And we see there that Jesus is encouraging parents to bring children to him, to lay down, to sacrifice for their children by bringing, so to speak, children to Jesus at every opportunity. What does it mean to lay down our lives as rich people? We looked at that from verse 17 to verse 27. What does it mean to lay down our lives when we have so many worldly ambition, careers to look after? Well, we looked at that this morning from verse 35 to verse 40. And there is more um, Jesus applies to. What does it mean in terms of how we relate to one another in the church? Where does the human family fit in relationship with, 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 the, with, with, with the God's family? And we, we, of course, examine that. Well, this afternoon, we are in Mark chapter 10, verse 41 to verse 45. And the truth Jesus wants us to learn here is that laying down our life for Jesus means laying down our lives for others. Uh, to put it plainly, living for Jesus means laying down your life for others. That's what it means to live, to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means you, those who truly follow Jesus, lay down their lives for others. And this is the point we learn here. It's a single point I want us to look at in this passage. So turn with me to verse 41 there. You remember, those of you who are here this morning, we saw James and John, supported by their man, demand power, privilege from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus 
rejected their advance, he corrected them, didn't he? He says, no, this is not how you're supposed to live. In my kingdom, it's upside down. <laughs> it's upside down. Living for me means rejecting your worldly ambition because you now share in my death. We looked at that this morning, right? It means you, you must die to your ambition to follow me. And naturally, the, the, the other ten disciples are hearing what's going on and they are not impressed with what James and John have done. In fact, we would say they are ready to go to the blows over this, right? And we read about that in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant. That's a strong word. They were indignant to James and John. Uh, they are very angry at them, ready, if you like, to go to the blows. Uh, the ten disciples are, are angry for two reasons, I think. One reason they're angry is because partly they feel that they've been stabbed in the back. James and John have brought family in the church, right? And they're saying, look, you know, we are followers of, the, we are followers of Jesus, but we are close. We are the true family. And they are demanding power for each other. And they've got the mom involved in all of this, right? So, so the, the ten feel these two men are separatists, putting family before the covenant community of God. So they're angry about that. The other reason they're angry is that they, they also want power and privilege from Jesus. They also desire glory. And they nearly missed out, right? Because James and John put a fast one here, nearly. And so they're angry about that because, you know, they nearly missed out. And as we think about these disciples, the apostles, the way they are divided over power, it is reminding us that all of us want power over people around us. We want other people to lay down their lives for us. Everyone here, all of us prefer other people to do things for us. We don't want to be the one doing them. You know, when the phone rings in the house, who answers it, right? Well, it's the other person. <laughs> you just sit there, you wait the phone ring, ring, ring. You're hoping the husband will pick it up or the wife is hoping, the husband is hoping the wife will pick it up. Someone has to do it, right? You know, if the remote control is missing but you want to change the channel, you're hoping someone else is going to look for it for you while you keep watching your program, right? Uh, when you have come home after a long day, don't you just want to eat? And leave the dishes there. <laughs> you want to leave the dishes there for someone else to clean them up. Right? We all want other people to lay down their life for us. This is how life is. And that is why in an average church such as ours, the work in the church is always done, and you can look at statistics, usually by 10% of the people. The same people do the work in churches all over again. Why? Because the other 90% always want the other 10% to do things for them. You know, we tend to think that it is only politicians, greedy CEOs, and those co-workers who want our positions at work who are self-serving. But we are all like that. We are all self-serving. Because we are all sinners. And you know what? Most of the time we protect our self-centeredness with the bodyguard of meaningless excuses. We say to ourselves, or to others, I am very tired today, that's why I don't want to do anything. Or I have a busy life, I can't squeeze in serving someone else. 
And my favorite, usually I hear from people, is this. I am just not good at that. Others are better than me. I love using that myself when I want to be lazy, I guess. Because that, that's the best excuse for selfishness. Because it sounds very holy. Humility. I just don't want to do that. I'm not really equipped for that. You know, pick someone else. Get somebody else to do it. Right? We are all like that. But when we think carefully about that, underneath that, it is simply that like the apostles, we prefer to be the ones who are being served rather than young John and his brother being served. Why are we like that? Why do we prefer to be served by others? Well, because we're in love with ourselves, right? That's, that's the bottom line. The DNA of sin is selfishness. And it shrinks the size of our universe, as Paul Tripp says, to the size of one. And of course, this is the spirit of the world, isn't it? The world says, I deserve a wonderful and comfortable life, and I want others to help me get it. The world says life is a Darwinian struggle of competing interests. And I need to look after number one, and if, and if I don't serve myself, no one will. And the world says life is a zero-sum game. And if I spend time serving other people, I lose. Uh, so, so, so we buy into that logic of the world, and what happens is that we are keen to use whoever we can to get away, to get ahead in life. We do that in the world, and we do it in the church, and we do it in small ways that we may, we, as, as I said, headed by our excuses. This is the thinking that is in the mind of these bickering apostles. And our Lord Jesus has heard it. And our Lord Jesus is saddened, I think, by it. Because he's looking at all the investment he has made. Over the last three years, God has come, has been teaching this man over the last three years. And there's been, it looks up from the face of it, zero progress. And as I think about how is Jesus feeling the way they are behaving like this. And I think that I would excuse the Lord Jesus at this point if he just cuts his losses and says, look, uh, three years I've had a go at you guys. Sorry. This is the outcome. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Big issues are going to be set to there. And you're not on board. You know, you still don't get it. I would expect him to do that. But our Lord Jesus doesn't do that. He gently summons them for another team meeting. Uh, to remind them to channel their ambition, so to speak, into a new direction. Uh, look at uh, verse 42 to verse 43. So full of grace. And it says, And Jesus called them to him and said, And said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, if you've been with us in Mark, you know already that Jesus is repeating what he's already taught them in chapter 9. He's saying, you long for transcendence, isn't it? We talked about that this morning. You long to be great. You long to transcend your boundaries. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's how God made you, Right? To long for greatness, to live with God, right? But what you need to understand that in my kingdom, being great is not in terms of power, but in terms of service. 
The great in my kingdom are the servants, not those being served. Verse 44 says that, isn't it? And whoever be first among you must be slave of all. Slave of all. Greatness is slavery in the kingdom. Now at this time in the Roman Empire, uh, where Jesus is, effectively in Roman Palestine, people were either slaves or they were free. There are only two categories of people. You're either a slave person or you're free. Right? Uh, these two statuses defined life in the Roman world. And slavery in the Roman world was not based on race or, 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 or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave. And nearly any slave could become free. So the Roman world was composed of these two groups of people who lived and worked together and were distinguished only by this status. This social status of free or slave. Now, prior to the first century, the majority of slaves were prisoners of war, right? But by the first century, where Jesus is speaking to the first century, the primary source for slaves was through, the birth, through birth into the slave system. So sometimes children were born, slave, were born some children born free would be, even be sold into slavery by their fathers due to poverty, in addition to those children who were just born, as it were, and within that slave system. And so you find that there are children born as slaves and there are children who have been sold as slaves to pay off debts, as it were. And sometimes in very rare cases, you'd find that people would sell themselves into slavery in order to advance on the social ladder, as it were, and then eventually buy their freedom as somebody great in society. The key thing we need to realize as Jesus is speaking here is that slavery in his culture meant complete loss of rights. It terminated marriage, family ties, business partnerships. Any public or private offices previously held go when you become a slave. In fact, there were a few constraints placed upon the owner. The owner could punish the slave in any way they decided to. The slave was the property of the owner. And we need to understand that because this is the context for us to understand what Jesus means when he calls on his followers here to be slaves, doulos, you find in the footnote there, bond servants, doulos, slaves of all. He is saying these disciples and us must willingly, freely, and lovingly renounce their rights and privileges in the way they live as they live towards their follow, fellow followers. They must be slaves of other believers. Followers of Jesus must not thirst for power like the pagan rulers. We must not seek to dominate each other. We must be slaves of each other. The kingdom of God, again, Jesus is demonstrating, is a reversal of the principles of the world. Living for Jesus is being a slave, not a master. And what Jesus is teaching here, beloved, is, is, is exact opposite of the experience of many people in churches. The experience of many people in churches is not an experience of being surrounded by people 
who regard themselves as slaves. No, the experience of many people in church is being surrounded by people who regard themselves as masters. And I think it is one of the reasons people struggle with the truth that a follower of Jesus must be an active member of a local church. People know that, but they struggle with that truth. Why? Because they come into churches that are very controlling of other people. But we see here that the true church is not made up of control freaks. It is made up of people who fall over each other to love and care for us. Slaves. That would be amazing being in a church where everybody regards themselves as a slave, isn't it? But this is how Jesus has designed his church. But as I said, sadly, in a fallen world, many churches are dominated by individuals who worship themselves. Many people join church not to be a slave of other believers, but to promote their individual rights and ensure church is comfortable for them. Many of our churches are full of people so full of themselves that there is no room for God and his church. It is just me, myself, and I. A true church, Jesus says, is made up of followers who are slaves for each other. Now, now, now I should point out a point here that is so important. Is that, don't misunderstand me. Being a slave of others does not mean we let people walk all over us. It also does not mean you, 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 you just condone being exploited by other people or, or simply look the other way to the poor behavior of others. That's sin. Jesus is a slave of all. And he's not like that. We see him rebuking sin. We see him getting very angry about sin. We see him giving serious charges as sinners who refuse to repent will not enter the kingdom of God. We see him taking up a whip. Later we see him do that. So being a slave is not some sort of softy-softy who just allow people to exploit you. No, that's what we're talking about here. Being a slave of all is humbly putting the interests of others ahead of yourself as Christ does. It is clothing yourself in humility and gentleness in order to serve people around you with love, grace, and the condescension of Christ. It means laying down your life to Jesus and then allowing God the Spirit to work in and through you to serve others sacrificially as Jesus himself would do it. It means me treating my brother as he would get treated if Jesus was talking next to him, standing next to him, or was the one serving him directly. Being a slave of all, beloved, is above all sacrificial living that allows us to give up our rights, our privileges, our blessings so that we can save others, not ourselves. It's, it's living that, that, that often means that we refuse to take on additional benefits to ourselves because we want to die so much for the other person. You're saying, I can't have this, yes, but I choose not to have this because I want to be a servant of other people that God has placed in my life. I just want to give you two examples that illustrate this, right? Just two people. These are real people, but the names have been changed, right? Think of a guy called John, right? John is a talented musician, and he uses his talents in a very unusual way. 
Uh, he has decided not to book concerts for personal fame and fortune. Instead, he has formed a ministry that takes this music, that takes his music, the instruments, and the hope of Jesus to underprivileged kids around the world. You see, the issue with John is this. Despite his amazing musical giftedness, John now lives on a missionary salary for the sake of serving others. He has become a slave for Jesus to the kids. That's just one example. He could have been a YouTube sensation, but he's chosen not to become one for Jesus. He's a slave to the kids. Oh, let me give you this example. Jenny, right? Jenny has been teaching as a primary school teacher for five years. Then she became pregnant with her first child. After the pregnancy and the maternity period, you expected Jenny to go back to school to teach. But to the surprise of everyone, she did not return to work when her daughter was born. Actually, she continued to stay at home, and she has, she has had five more kids. She had had four more kids, right? But the reason she stayed at home is not just to have the four extra kids, right? She stayed at home because she wants to continue to homeschool her kids. She's looking at the society around her, and she said, I must take responsibility for my children. So what Jenny has done is she sacrificed her career, her income, and even our recognition as a you know, responsible person, as it were, in society, in order that she could be a slave for her children. And the sacrifice for Jenny doesn't end there, because, you see, Jenny's relationship with her mother has actually become fractured. Because her mother cannot forgive Jenny for what she regards as a very reckless decision to give up a job that she had invested in. But Jenny is a slave for her children. She's living out Mark 10, verse 41 to 45. Jenny, John, I can give you plenty of other examples. These are just two examples that illustrate in a tangible way, I hope, some ways in which being a slave of others may work out in the lives of true followers of Jesus. And as you think about John, Jenny, you think about what Jesus is saying here. Maybe one other question you could ask yourself this afternoon is this. How would my life look like if I obeyed today? I hear many sermons through, I've heard many sermons of Mark, but I just make it an aim to obey verse 41 to verse 45. How would my life look like if I obeyed what Jesus is saying here? That living for him means laying down my life for others. How would this look like in my family? How would this look like in my career choices? How would this look like in the street where I live? How would it look like, right, in the life of this church? How, how, what would change about my life? Perhaps not now, but maybe a year as you're planning, or two years, or three years from now. And as somebody who has been placed in this church, you need to ask this question also corporately. How would this church look like if this church has a whole together laid down its life for Jesus. And you must ask, how can we as a body of believers lay down our lives for others, perhaps in this community where God has placed us? You must ask that. 
And we have a members meeting coming up on Wednesday, right? You must think, you must pray, and you must share what you think applying this text look like for us. Because what's the point of going through 81 sermons in Mark when there's been no single tangible application corporately? Well, let's start with this one. I'm sure Get Sermon will help us to apply a few. But let's start here. All right? We need to take this seriously because the reason we need to lay down our lives is given to us in the closing words of Jesus in verse 45. Let's look at verse 45. Jesus hasn't finished speaking. Look what he says. Why should we do all of this? Why should we lay down our lives for others? For, we can replace that with the word because. Because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the Son of Man is Jesus, as you know, Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. And he describes himself as fully God because the Son of Man, we see him in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, as the divine Son of Man. And then, of course, it's another way of just describing himself as fully man because we see him in Psalm 8, verse 4, in Psalm 8, we read about the Son of Man as a human man. So it's Son of Man tells Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in this context, it's obvious Jesus is using the title in the divine sense. Why? Because it says, for even the Son of Man came. In other words, the Son of Man had a pre-existence and he came. How did he come? How did he enter our world as a pre-existing son? Well, he came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is saying, look, he could have entered this world, you know, on the greatest chariot God could ever construct. He could have come on that. He could have come riding on the clouds. But no, he chose to come as a slave. He put on the rags of human flesh as one of us. How is becoming a, coming as a human being coming as a slave? Because human beings are slaves enslaved to sin, death, and hell. All human beings are enslaved in the household of Satan. And Jesus came to be born into our slavery of Satan, our slavery of sin, in order to bind the strong man from within the household so that he could set us free from sin. For even the Son of Man came not to be saved, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. You know, the original word for ransom here is litron. And it only occurs here in the New Testament. Uh, it is a word literally that describes the price paid to free slaves. And Jesus is saying, God the Son gave up his freedom so that we may be freed from the slavery of our sin. He gave up his privileges so that we may share in his privileges. Now, now remember Mark 8, verse 37, which we haven't quoted many times. It makes it clear that no human being can ransom himself. But here is the good news. We don't have to. God comes to ransom you. That's the gospel. And if you're trusting in Jesus, God has laid down his life for you. And the consequences of that is that you must now let down your life for others. Dedrick Bonhoeffer says this. 
Once a man has experienced the mercy of God in his life, he will henceforth aspire to serve. The proud throne of the judge no longer attracts him. He wants to be down below with the lowly and the needy. Why? Because that is where God found him. Do you follow that? You are found down in the dumps of sin. You are undeserving. You are enslaved. That's where God reached out for you. And because God has now rescued you, you know you must do what you can to point those who are still in chains to Christ. Do you see this? This is, this is just what we're talking about here. It's not just theory, like this is interesting, it's fascinating. Wow, Jesus frees slaves. Wow, isn't that so good? That's wonderful. Oh, wow, I wish I could believe that. It's not theory like that. This is practical stuff. This is a gospel issue. If you're truly converted, you will have a genuine desire to live, genuine desire, not cranked up, genuine desire to live as Jesus lives, a slave of his people. You know, most followers of Jesus spend a lot of time trying to find ways to move up the ladder in life. Most people do. We spend a lot of time trying to find ways to move up in life. That's what we do. We spend our energy saying, how can I have a bigger thing? Huh? What CV should I write this week to get me a better job? How long will it take before I get promoted? As my kids grow up, I wonder, oh, wow, I'm looking forward to that. Freedom, again. I'll move up. I'll have more time to myself. Oh, that'll be brilliant. We spend our time planning retirement. That would be fantastic. As I said, I used to look forward to retirement. We spend our time planning how to move up the ladder in life. But we never consider moving in the opposite direction. And the Bible is moving us in the opposite direction. The world spends time trying to climb ladder. Jesus' followers are being called to climb further down and down and down and down and down and being slave of all. And here's the thing, beloved. The reason why you are living trying to climb up the ladder is that you have taken your eyes off Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man he who was God, came who is fully God, came not to climb up the ladder, but to climb down the ladder, to give his life as a ransom for many. You're trying to climb up the ladder because you've taken your eyes off the cross. You are busy looking to the world to fulfill you. You want to be admired by the world, as we talked about this morning. And here's the thing, beloved, here's the thing. If you keep staring at these lifeless idols, according to Isaiah, those who stare at idols eventually become like those idols they look at. If you keep staring at this world and wanting, craving the things of this world, you will become lifeless like the, as the things you crave. You will prove in the end, perhaps, that you never really knew Christ. You are so close in a reformed church. 
all the sermons you had, but you never really, they had the opposite effect. So if you truly belong to Jesus, then follow the example of young Count von Nicholas. I won't say his surname, right? We see him there in Dusseldorf, fixing his gaze on Jesus, hanging on that cross with that crown of thorns. So do that. Fix on Christ. Fix on his cross. And you will hear Jesus say to you, all of this, Mark 10, 45, I did it for you. What have you done for me? And you answer, when you like the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring. Only the cross of Christ I cling. You say, I am laying down my life for you. I'm clinging to the cross. And I'm doing it for you and it's working out in the lives of others. I am being a slave, a dormant for you. Well, may this be true of each one of us this evening. And may he enable you to lay down your life for his people. Amen.